3% would be willing to become a prostitute for a week. 7% said they would murder a stranger. That was in 91. There is a moral standard. It's found in the Bible. A moral code, if you will, by which mankind can guide his life. It's found in Exodus chapter 20. It's scoffed by many. It's considered archaic by others. It's ignored and utterly abandoned by a lost society in general. But God, the creator of all, established a list of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations, standards by which society can be run in a decent, orderly manner. And it's that passage we have the privilege to look at this evening. And as we take some time to do that, I have an outline, and it's not, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit more longer. Actually, I try to keep it from going into two pages, and we didn't. But there's so much that could be said about this subject, and I'm looking forward to digging in with you and looking at the law. Because we read right at the beginning of Exodus 20, and God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And here we have that moral code laid out for us called the Ten Commandments a few different times in Scripture. And let's ask God to help us tonight. Father, we do need your assistance understand the truth of your word. We're thankful that you took time with the children of Israel just as they were poised to enter into the, the promised land to share with them the things that they needed to know. And I pray that uh, you would help us to understand better the law and its role even in our lives today. I pray that you would give us uh, wisdom and help and that uh, your word would be truly the guide of our lives, the moral standard by which we base our activities and actions upon. And we'll thank you for your help, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to embark on a 40-day journey. I didn't say 40-sermon journey, so don't worry. 
but it was a 40-day period of time, if you would, where Moses spent time with God in the mount. And while he was there, he received these commandments and, quite frankly, a number of other commandments because the law does not just consist of these ten things that we have just read, uh, but quite frankly, if you would take the time to look at it, this is the section that begins, if you would, we could argue the law, and starts in chapter 20, and it goes all the way to chapter 31. It was interesting to me, as I read that through, you know, we always look at the thou shalt not, thou shalt, and we see these things, but uh, what I did was I took some time to search that the two words, thou shalt, in the book of Exodus. And I began counting how often those words were found starting in chapter 20, because you'll find them a few other places. But primarily starting in chapter 20 and going on through chapter 31, you will find those words. I could be wrong, so don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure I have it over 250 times. Now, that doesn't mean there's that many rules and regulations, although some tell us that there are upwards of 600 rules that God gave. Um, but uh, here's the idea. This is absolute. God wasn't giving Israel a choice, an option here. He was calling upon them to obey. And he said, these are, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. You know, you kind of get tired of that if your parents said it 250 times. And they just say, I, I, they did. They did. Uh, maybe they did. But it's a law and a section of absolutes. And that phrase conspicuous throughout the law should remind us that this is a very serious matter. Now, you say, when are you going to get into an outline? Well, you've got to spend time and you've got to lay things out here. So, so we're taking a little bit of time to do that. Sometimes we divide the law into two parts. How do we divide it? Do you, do you know how people do often? It's just us here tonight, right? Okay, all right. You, you would say there were two. What, what were you going to say? Okay, so Jesus Christ himself said there were two, all right? But when we talk about them, sometimes we divide them by, does anyone? Uh, I, I, was trying, I was going a little bit in a different direction with this. Well, right, okay, right and wrong. That's pretty simple. Sometimes when we describe the law, we talk about the moral law. Is it, okay. And then we also divide it by ceremonial laws. Okay, there's a reason why, by the way, people like to do that. Although I, I'm still searching in the scripture for a place where we're told that, the, that, that we have to obey the moral laws, but we don't have to obey the ceremonial laws. Um, but anyway, that's how it's often done. Um, some like to do that so they can teach that we don't have to obey ceremonial laws today, but the moral laws are still obligation. And again, I'm not sure we can prove that from scripture. But I understand why they want to make that point, because it answers some questions like, what do you do with the Sabbath? That you say, I haven't ever thought before. Well, it is part of the Ten Commandments, so what do you do with the Sabbath? It's interesting that uh, in, in even Christianity, uh, other than the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, you pretty much have people that ignore the Sabbath day. 
Um, and by the way, there's others that say, well, the Sabbath day was made the Lord's day for the Christian church, and the Lord's day is the Sabbath, um, which also you can't find in the Bible. Uh, but there's a lot of things that people do in order to explain or explain away their practices. Um, some people point to Galatians chapter 3 and say the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster in Galatians 3, 24 and 25 in talking about the law. So they say we're no longer under the law. Now, I, if I were to adjust that subject, we wouldn't even get into chapter 20. All right. There's a lot of things and a lot of questions that have to be and that could be answered about this. But we could do a study, quite frankly, for 40 messages and maybe even more, just dealing with the laws that are found in these chapters. And we're not going to do that because this isn't a study of the law. This is a study of the book of Exodus. So we're going to seek to take a little bit of time here. We are going to have to kind of like pause for a few weeks and look at some of these things. And I hope you will find some help in the word of God and from these laws. Now, let's, let's just state it this way. There are moral laws. There are ceremonial laws that were required of Israel. There are civil laws found here for decent and orderly structure of government. There are practical laws about treating people properly and decently. And that's kind of simplifying it overall, I know. But that's what God gave. And the truth is we can't say all that ought to be said about even Exodus chapter 20 in just one week or probably even in many. Uh, Jesus Christ focused on it a number of times. In the Sermon on the Mount, he mentions some things about the, about the moral law of God. And many times in dealing with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he condemned them for making rules that weren't there and for ignoring rules that were there. And, uh, and so it is an important subject. It was to Jesus Christ, and it should be to us. These are the laws that God gave. So let's then jump into the outline, all right? And let's begin where our passage begins, and sometimes it's not even mentioned, but it needs to be. We just jump into the laws, but you notice it says, and God spake all these words, saying, and this is important to note, the speaker or the source of the law. The speaker or the source of the law. If we're going to understand that there is a law that has been given, it's really important for us, and I'm glad God took the time in the first couple of verses to share with us the person who gave them. Because we could point a finger and say, Moses, this was your idea. We could point a finger to, to the guy that comes down from the mountain and say, yeah, you had some things you want to give us. But Moses made it clear, and God made it clear, and took the time to share with us, these, these are God's ideas. These are not man's ideas. It's not man's thoughts. So you put it this way, the person. The person is God. These are God's words. And that's not a minor point. In fact, it's probably maybe one of the most important points of this chapter. God spake all these words, saying. These are what God told Moses. And it reminds us then, morality is not man's idea. Standards of decency and right are not man's idea. They're gods. And the truth is, before this was ever given, God had already laid the law out. You say, well, how do we know that? Because Cain knew that he wasn't supposed to kill his brother. Where do you ever get that from? Because there is a moral God 
who laid out moral standards for his people to follow. They knew what sacrifices they were supposed to bring to God. Cain didn't, Abel did. But it wasn't as if God said all of a sudden, ha, I haven't said anything about that, I haven't given the law yet, but you're responsible, and Cain, I reject your offering. No, these things were made clear by God because God had moral standards. He had things that he expected of his people. And up until the time when it was physically written by Moses, God had expectations and rules that his people were to follow. They were not to kill. They knew that. It was clear. So the person speaking is God. And the creator of all, the one true God, is the one who tells us. And this is so important. In a day when people do right in their own eyes, in a day in which truth is negotiable as far as man is concerned, it's not with God, because God spake all these words. So, is it okay to steal in the workplace? Well, as long as you're not caught, some would say today. Uh, God says, thou shalt not steal. Um, others would say, well, they're not paying you enough, so if you can get away with it, go to it. Obey your parents. Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, I'm not. And God isn't when he said, children, obey your parents. When he said, honor thy father and thy mother. Um, there are so many ways that, that God's rules are being ignored. Um, not the, the least that people are now being given the choice to decide if they're male or female when, the, when they don't have that choice. That's already been made for them. God took care of that too. Um, you know, truth, reality is being shoved aside for personal whims of whoever happens to be uh, making the decision themselves. Um, and I, I got to tell you this, society is in serious trouble when people start doing that. You, know, you, you think we've seen some bad things in our day with people who will go out and kill a bunch of folks um, and, and they'll end up in court and, and you know, get, be, be given, what, 13 life sentences. But uh, just wait until we, we have now one more generation that has been taught, you do whatever your heart tells you and see what happens in society. Um, we're, we're headed for a rough road unless there is a, a mighty revival of God in the hearts of people, I'm telling you. Because man has said, there are no rules. And God says, there are. Let me give them to you. God spake all these words. The person, notice his position. I am the Lord thy God. So, first of all, God says, God tells us, I spoke these words. These are not man's ideas. Moses didn't say, Lord, let's discuss this. Let's talk this through. Uh, let me give you some suggestions, Lord, because I've seen the children of Israel, and boy, they need help. No, God said, these are my words. Moses, you write them down. Um, and uh, actually, God wrote them down the first time on stone. Now, Moses went and broke it, so he had to go back up and do another one. Uh, same standards, though, they didn't change. But notice again his position. It says this, I am the Lord thy God. He is Jehovah, the eternal self-existent one. The truth is all beings owe their existence to him. Without him, there would be no life whatsoever. There would be nothing without God, but God needs nothing to exist. So then, since they come from the one who doesn't need anything to exist, and he is the one who gives all life, then it makes sense that everyone should come and bow before the Creator and say, 
You have the right to decide these things. You have the right to tell us what to do because we are alive at your command. We're alive because of your power that is being evidenced, and no one has done that for you. So the superior being is the one who has the right to set the standards. He can set the rules. Um, and he, is, he needs nothing to exist. It is that God, the one who has always existed, that has established rules of right and wrong, decency and indecency. He is called also Elohim in this passage, the supreme God, the God of all gods. This comes from the top of the power chain. Okay, You can't get any higher than, than the authority that write, wrote these words and gave these instructions to mankind. There's no authority above him, equal to him, or in competition with him. Have you ever gone to someone's house, played a game, and you were going through the game and you said, well, that's not what the rules say, and they said, that's house rules. Let me tell you something. You are not going to win if you're playing by house rules. You already know, man, you're a loser. Because if someone pulls out the house rules, uh, then it's going to be whatever they choose. And quite honestly, there's people to, who today are deciding right and wrong according to house rules. But let's understand something. We're in God's house. And he makes the rules, and we need to live by his standard. But there's something that I have missed so many times when I've read this passage. Because he said, I am the Lord thy God. And if he ended right there, he would appropriately be the one we should listen to, right? But notice what he said to the children of Israel. And I, I, I guess because I've always heard the Ten Commandments as rules and laws and regulations to live by, I never contemplated what God said at the beginning of this passage when he said this. I am the Lord thy God. And he didn't end it there. He said, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And he say, is there something significant about that? Well, before God gives the rules, he reminds the people he's their redeemer. Now, you might think there's little significance, but one writer said something that uh, made me really think this through. He said that these laws are not rules for slaves, but they're given as an appeal to conscience to freed people who have the right of choice, but people who should care about what their Redeemer thinks and wants. Most of the time, the Ten Commandments has been pre presented to me as a number of rules, and I've looked at it all that way. But God didn't present it that way. God said, I am God, the one that's redeemed you. And so there's a reason why a believer today ought to obey God's rules and regulations whether we're talking about commands, moral commands here, or what's taught in the New Testament for Christians and what God expects. It's because God is our redeemer. Um, having lived in freedom for my life, I cannot fully grasp the concept of something being owned. I don't know about you. I, it's it's, it's kind of like um, uh, understanding what we mentioned this morning about the Holocaust and someone being upset because a man took and made a wick and put it in some, some margarine, you know, a ration of margarine. It's, it's hard for us to grasp and understand 
starvation and understand what a sacrifice something like that would be to someone who has absolutely nothing. It's also hard for me to understand what it's like for someone to be owned, to be property. I think what it'd be like though, to, or at least try to think what it'd be like to be property. Do you be in a situation where you have to fulfill the whims of another? Because that's where Israel found themselves in Egypt. They, they were a nation that for hundreds of years, longer than the existence of America, they had been in slavery, told what to do. They didn't take vacations when they wanted. They didn't go off and, and travel to go see their, their family in, in the land of Canaan. Uh, they, they weren't able to uh, just freely uh, buy and sell and, and do all sorts of other things. They were made to serve, the Bible says, with rigor. The slave, the, the, these people treated as slaves were beat if they didn't fulfill the obligations and the responsibilities that the Pharaoh gave to them. They built two cities for Pharaoh. Uh, they had a, a, a lot of responsibilities and things they had to do, and they didn't have a choice. It wasn't like, I don't want to, today I'm calling in sick. You didn't call in sick. Get it? It was so bad. This guy had such authority that he was telling people that if a baby was born, it was a boy, it was to be thrown in the river. Parents watched their boys thrown into a river and killed. And they couldn't do anything about it. And that it's what God freed them from. And he reminds them as he begins this. And he says, okay, you can look at this as a bunch of rules that you have to meet. Or you can understand, I am God. I have delivered you. And say, Lord, I just want to serve you whatever you ask. I'd be glad to do. Because if you were taken from a situation where your life was on the line if you didn't obey and you had learned and you had practiced that all your life and God came in and through 10 amazing, powerful events brought you out of that land so much so that the people gave you, they gave you all sorts of things when you left and said, please get out. Then the natural response should be, sure, Lord, I don't have any problem with that. Do you know the problem the children of Israel had is the same problem we have today? Sometimes we forget we've been redeemed. And we look at the Bible as rules and regulations from Almighty God, which is correct and true. But we forget that that God is our Redeemer. And we should do these things not because we're forced to, but because as freed people, we have the opportunity to. These things please God. These things honor him. And so we haven't even gotten into the Ten Commandments, and quite frankly, it's just convicting. It truly is the provision that God has made. All right, so if you missed it, 
the person, the position, the provision. Now let's get into the statutes. So we have the speaker introduced, the source of the law, and we have the statutes. In verses 3 to 17, we have these. Now, um, again, to thoroughly understand these, it would honestly take weeks. We could go into the New Testament and look at Jesus Christ and many of his teachings, especially the Sermon on the Mount. We could go to Matthew 5.28 about looking on a woman to lust after her and how Jesus brought home a truth that, that people ignored in that matter. Um, he talked about different issues, things dealt with in the law, like divorce. Jesus didn't mince any words, and he wasn't ashamed to tell people the truth. And he dealt with a number of different things in laws, so we would have to go there. But we're not going to take time to do that because the goal is to give us a look at the entire book and not just one little portion of it. So let's walk through these laws, these statutes. And the first one, and, and really you just got to write these in, no other gods. We're going to try to make it very succinct if we could. No other gods. And the first deals with the object of our worship. There's to be nothing, no person that you put above God in your life. He's to be first. He's to be foremost. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. I think uh, Brother Murphy was bringing that out here. You know, that, these things, here's what we're supposed to do in relation to God. And there's not supposed to be any other God. He's to be first and foremost. You're to love him supremely. Uh, a, a preacher put it this way. He says, you're probably a believer in heliocentricity. I knew I was going to have trouble saying that word. They said, that's not a new denomination. It means that the sun is the center of our solar system and all the planets, including this little tennis ball we live on, are revolving around the sun. We do sound a little confused about this sometimes, like when we say, isn't that a beautiful sunset? Actually, the sun isn't going anywhere. We're the ones who are moving. But who wants to go for a romantic walk to watch a beautiful earth set? Well, apparently, not everyone's got this orbit thing straight. The American Scientific Association did a survey a few years ago and found that 21% of Americans surveyed thought the sun orbited around the earth. 7% said they didn't know. <laughs> so he said, I want to have a word with you today about when a planet becomes your sun. So there's some confusion about the fact that the planets revolve around the sun, not the sun around the planets. That's not a scientific issue. It's, it's a spiritual issue, too or just a scientific issue, it's a spiritual issue too. Because too many of us have forgotten that it's supposed to be the sun at the center of our life. That, but we've put the planets of our life in the center, and in reality, everything is revolving around it. And the Bible calls that a word we don't want to accept. It's an idol. And it is a violation of the first commandment given. Then he asked the question, do you have things in your life, planets, that you revolve around rather than the sun? Thought-provoking, isn't it? Someone else explained it this way. Today we can allow many things to become gods to us. Money, fame, work, pleasure. They can become gods when we concentrate too much on them for personal identity, for meaning, for security. No one sets out with the intention of worshiping these things, but by the amount of time we devote to them, they grow into gods that ultimately control our thoughts and our energies. 
And letting God hold the central place in our lives keeps these things from turning into gods. A god is whatever people put first in their lives. And many of us worship other gods by building our lives around something other than God, the true God. And he's right. No other gods. What's the second? Verses 4, 5, and 6 tell us no graven images. So no other gods, first, verse 3, and then no graven images. The second law deals with the way in which God is to be worshipped. It's one thing to have a, a, a planet that we center our life around and, and, and our life revolves around rather than the sun, all right, using that illustration. It's one thing to put something before God and another for you to make an object and worship it as God. And thus, rejecting what God has said about worship. God said, you're to worship me. You're not to worship idols. You're not to worship things made of stone or of wood. They're just things made of stone and wood. They're dead. They're not living. And so God says, look, you are to worship me. Whether the children of Israel, by the way, struggled with that, didn't they? Uh, what happened? By, by the way, what happened while God, Moses was up there getting this? Yeah, they made themselves a God. This is the God. They did, by the way, they didn't say God doesn't exist. They said, this is your God. And they violated this very law in that act. Because they made God that golden calf. And God says, you're not supposed to do that. Here is how I'm supposed to be worshipped. You don't worship any, any item at all as God. Do you remember the pole that Moses put up, the brazen serpent, that, that saved many lives? Do you know that later on, it had to be destroyed? And the reason it had to be destroyed, which is funny, they carried it all the way into, into the, the promised land, and they kept it. You know, where did they store that thing? Okay, I, now, we're, now we're getting off on, you know, where did they store this? Wow, okay. But the people, the, the children of Israel ended up worshiping that. And it became, uh, if you would, a God to them that needed to be removed because it was replacing, if you would, the true God of heaven. And we're not supposed to have any image. Now you say, well, we don't have a problem with that. Um, well, the Roman Catholic Church does, but... Uh, um, and there are a number of places where it is done, where, where things are worshipped. But the spirit of this law is that if we're going to worship God, we have to worship God his way. Not something of our own doing, something of our own imagination, but we've got to come and worship God his way. And if there is an application of this beyond, if you would, some idol you bow down to because we don't do that, uh, it would be... When we tell God, here's how we're going to worship, rather than saying, God, how do you want us to worship? How do you want us to come to you? I am, I am sincere about this when I say we have sought, and, and every church should, and sadly a lot don't, we have sought to determine our worship not by what we've set as a standard for worship, but by coming and saying, okay, what does God want? We use different music here than a lot of places use. There's a reason why. And it's based on Bible principles. 
that guide and direct. And there's a reason we do that. It's because we're not the one who determines how to worship God. Today, in, in, in what's called Christianity, a, a large percentage of what's called Christianity, people that we would even say are saved people, folks are worshiping God according to their own plan. And that's Israel had that problem, and Christians have that problem today, where we've said, this is how we're going to worship God. And God said, this is how you should worship me. And we need to come back to and say, okay, God, how do you want me to worship you? And do it. And if it's not taught in the Bible, if it's not found in the Bible, then, then that, shouldn't be, that shouldn't be a problem. There's things we can do differently. But when God has given us guidelines and God has given us instructions, we need to come God's way. Because God said, you're not to worship me this way. You're not to make an idol. You're not to build something and then worship that and make your own plan and your own God in your mind. But you're to worship me this way. No other gods. You just come and you worship me. And uh, the truth is, we're not to have images up. Uh, okay, I'm going to say it. All right? Th this, I, I've, I've been in homes with so many Christians. I just love to have a picture of Jesus up. My friends, we're not supposed to worship an image. There's a reason why we don't have a picture of Jesus. And there's a reason why we don't have an, an image that we physically uh, are, are, are supposed to have because we're not supposed to worship God that way. Um, now, if I ever come to your house, I won't say anything about your picture of Jesus you have on the wall. But take it down. That was free. Just, we just need to understand that God has got to be worshipped his way. And um, we are, uh, and, and it's very powerful. Thou shalt not make to thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or in the earth beneath that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. He says, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And this is a really, there's a powerful statement here and beautiful picture of God in the, in the text. We have a picture of a God of judgment. There is a hell. There is a coming judgment. And anyone who says a loving God would never do that doesn't understand the law, doesn't understand the Old Testament, doesn't understand the New Testament. And there's also a God of mercy that offers salvation to whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. And he gives us that beautiful picture in the law. And he says, I am just and those that hate me, and by the way, anyone who does, who makes an image and says, this is, what, this is how I'm going to worship God, and anyone that says, I'm going to worship God this way, this is the way, this is the way I think it should be done. Okay? They hate God. Because God said, don't do that. You come my way. Uh, what, a, what a powerful message. Number three, don't, do not take his name in vain. Do you know there are two ideas purported by various people in understanding the words of verse 7? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. All right, what's a common way? What do you think of when you say you're not supposed to take the name of the Lord in vain? 
Okay, you're not to, to, to curse, you're not to use his name. Do, do you know how many Christians say, oh my, and they're not using his name reverently? No, yes, I'm talking Christians. Um, in fact, I was, I was thinking, through, okay, you're going to be in trouble. I think in the last, last month I've heard at least two Christians use his name in a, in a very irreverent way. And that is certainly one of the ways. But there actually are, are two ideas of this. Uh, the first would be um, the idle utterance of the name of God or any profane utterance of the name of God. But others give it this sense, thou shalt not swear falsely by the name of Jehovah thy God. The Hebrew word in vain can be rendered either way. So it can mean you're not supposed to profane or, or idly utter the name of God or you're not to swear falsely by the name of Jehovah God. Or in other words, you're not supposed to make, if you would, promises to God you don't keep. And both would be a legitimate understanding of the wording that is given here in the law. And it would be smart for us to follow both ideas. Leviticus 19.12 says, And ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. And God brought both things together in Leviticus 19 verse 12 and actually gives us both ideas. You don't profane his name, you don't use his name, uh, don't swear falsely by his name, but you also don't profane his name in any way because he is God. The idle utterance of God's name, that, that using that phrase, oh my, and not using it in reverence or respect um, is, is an evil thing. And, and quite frankly, it happens all the time. In the workplace, it happens all the time in society. You, you hear people conversing. And, and uh, you, you know what's amazing? People don't even respect God, but they use him all the time in their conversations. Um, but there's also, how many promises have we made to God at stressful times only to back out? And that also is an evil thing. And so the first three we've had opportunity to look at, and we'll continue on next. Oh, the Sabbath day, right? So we'll pick up there. Uh, Lord willing, next time we have opportunity. Um, looks like it'll probably be two weeks from today um, because we have the missionary next week. And unless uh, weather providentially hinders that, um, we will get back to it when we can. All right? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, and I, I thank you that um, in these commandments there are challenges for us even today to think about, and I, I pray that we would, uh, that we would uh, understand that we have a Redeemer, and he deserves our very best. One who took us from the slave market of sin has freed us and now says, I have some rules and regulations and guidelines to live your life by. And may we just willingly, lovingly follow what you'd have for us and please you. And Lord, uh, we'll thank you for the help that you give us to do this very thing. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.